Welcome to Heavy Strategy 16. The discussion topic today is what is the right organization structure for an IT team? Now, the challenge here is, of course, is that we've got so much uh, cruft in and history and legacy in IT organizations. And a lot of it is based around ITIL. And I think I'm going to be push pushing my ITIL hatred button uh, at the very least, I will probably spout heavily about my utter and complete loathing of ITIL and explain more about that why. But this is your topic, Jonah, so why don't you espouse your vision for organization structures in IT teams? Well, Greg, I had originally proposed this topic as I think architecture, engineering, and operations is the best organizational structure. Change my mind. But... Realistically, I actually don't. I just think it's really funny that the pendulum keeps swinging each way where it's technology silos because technology is hard and you need subject matter experts to be really good at it and therefore you want technology towers. In fairness, this is one of the few Gartner terms that I actually think is a good one because you can envision a, t a tower and it has all the drawbacks of a silo. It's got that thick casing, you can't get in or get out. It's got very few windows, so you know, you're very inward focused and it's very hierarchical, so you're climbing up and down. Now everybody's kind of swinging back and saying, oh, we need architecture, engineering and operations. I won't say I think it's actually the best, but from my perspective, one of the reasons that I really like that model is because there is actually a role for architecture and it's construed more or less accurately most of the time. And Greg, I know you're a big fan of operations. You consider operations the key piece. Um, from my perspective, I think having an architecture is really important and too few organizations, especially tower organizations, have an architecture that that is consistent across all of IT and also detailed enough for each of the technologies. My view on this is that IT is a production line, just like a factory, right? Or it has historically been seen in that format. And there's been an attempt by most people in enterprise IT to lay a structure on IT, which is based around 50-year-old old ideas of you know, you design a factory, you build the factory, you operate the factory to produce products for customers. And then at some point, the asset devalues and becomes, and then you redesign the factory, you redeploy the factory, and then you operate the factory until such time as, an you know, there's some sort of force change. And that, of course, is um, encompassed in the ITIL practitioners process, right? Which is... So tell us why you hate it. <laughs> because it fundamentally creates that fixed idea that you buy something and then it sits like a compost pile and steadily rots away for five to 10 years or sweat the assets for 20 if you can. There's no concept of evolution, progressive evolution. It's, and it always leads into punctuated evolution. Just like a production line of a car, they say, you know, we build the first production line, then we spend a lot of time getting it working. And then once it's working, we've got to extract value from it. So we don't change it after that. And it probably worked fairly well in the era of mainframes and minis and microcomputers. One of the things that we don't see today, of course, is in that factory metaphor is the idea that normally companies take on debt to build a factory. And that was also true of technology back in the day. So I remember talking to CEOs of companies who would be arranging finance. We would have to be working with them to be able to extract finance from a company to take on board uh, any sort of computer, mini, micro, mainframe, whatever. And you're talking a five-year loan, not, you know, five mm -hmm. to 10-year loan. This is not funded out of cash flow like we see now or budgeted out of the line budget. And so you really wanted to get it all right because when you go out for the loan, you have to specify all of your assets and things like that. So I think the history behind that made sense. 
but then it became a metaphor for all operations. And so you end up this, what you called architecture engineering operations became a metaphor for factory type. And that's a very old way of thinking. Of course, IT has gone on to evolve to a much more organic, fungible, movable, flexible, dynamic. And then you come along and say, oh, well, there's architecture, there's engineering, there's operations, there's design, deploy, operate. There's a tension there between I want to run it this way and it's got to be static and it's got to be unchanging. But at the same time, the technology itself promotes change and variability and cycling. But you also have to structure your people in such a way that they know where they are and know where they are and what they do. So there's there's tensions there, right? Does that make sense? There absolutely are. And uh, I noticed you carefully, carefully avoiding that wonderful buzzword of innovation, because Mm. I know you have a great quote on uh, the whole concept of innovation. But I agree that one of the challenges is you need an organizational structure that can adapt to innovation. The idea is that the, as you were saying, the, the pace of change outside the organization has picked up enormously and will continue to accelerate into the future as far as anyone knows. So whatever organizational structure you have, you have to be actually really good at poking your head outside the organizational structure mm. on a regular basis and figuring out, hey, there's this new technology that's going to change absolutely everything. How do we organize well, ourselves to implement it? So technology hasn't really changed in 30 years. So back in the days when I was employing S100 computers with CPM or prime microcomputers running PicOS with apps on top, if you sort of stand back a little bit and uh, and, and look at that, there actually hasn't been a whole lot of innovation. There's been no transformational innovation. The first generation of change with technology was in the era of spreadsheets. And before that, it was accounting. There's a story I often tell. I remember deploying a mini computer into a carpet warehousing company. And when I walked in, there was a, uh, you know, there was a big warehouse down the back and it had rolls and rolls of carpet and and shelves and, you know, forklifts and all that. These men would stomp up the stairs and drop a piece of paper into an inbox. And there was 45 people in four rows. And one of them was shipping, which then went to their ledger. and And then there was another one doing purchasing and there was another one doing general ledger and reconciliation and another one doing accounts payable and accounts receivable, all that sort of stuff. And we put the computer system in and I had to come back six months later to do some maintenance or some repairs. And they'd gone from 45 people in that room to 15. And I came back 18 months later and it was down to four. Now that was innovation. That is a transformation, but it didn't innovate so much because all it did was took the existing accounting system and just automated it. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I made a point a couple of years ago that has been borne out in everything but the buzzword, everything mm-hmm. but the buzzword, where I talked about how technology has evolved from, you know, if you want to talk about mainframes, essentially mainframes, as you said, were about automating the back office. Accountants, yeah. it rocked their worlds. Yes. Then in the 90s <laughs> and, you know, the first decade of this century, it was all about automating the front office. Back in the day, You automated the back office, but the guy in the front office still had a desk and a filing cabinet and a telephone and a a secretary and and a a secretary. Yeah. 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 And all of that got automated. And now the 21st century is about automating the workers that are neither back office nor front office, but are actually out there getting the work done. But none of that's an innovation. It's all, no, or, I dis- it's I not disagree. a revolution. It's a revo- I, it's an evolution. Like it's an I disagree. evolution. I, I mean, and at one fundamental level, you can say all we've got is intelligence and networking, and that hasn't changed in 50 years. That's true. Hmm. But the fo- 
form factor of that intelligence and networking changed so much that it is in fact an innovation because it changes the daily lives of the people in these different spheres. So I, I would argue that form factor innovation is innovation. I, I regard innovation as the development of the steam engine to a viable standard that trains could run and steam engines could power factories, like generate electricity and run factories. That the development of the transistor was an innovation. Everything after that is evolution. So I'm much more of a big picture. I actually disagree with that wholeheartedly and have mm. explained why. So rather than berate that, let me toss out, do you think quantum computing is an innovation at that level? Not particularly. It's it's still computing, right? And at the at the current rate, what it does is it makes computing faster doesn't make it and better error, but it doesn't suddenly shift us. Like even if you made today's computer, look at the M1 CPU that uh, Apple's just shipped. It's an order of magnitude of performance over Intel um, in terms of raw performance, but also, you know, dramatic reduction in battery power. Yeah, and I'll, I'll disagree on that one as well, because mm -hmm. I really think that you're looking at more like 50,000 times better and the ability to compute things that you couldn't before, you know, due to the concept of qubits, now you're moving away from this whole binary computing. So it's a fundamental change by your definition. Mm -hmm. It's a fundamental change. And it will enable things that were completely impossible as opposed to merely difficult. So I think those, so I think quantum computing is on the horizon. I know some of our yeah. clients are actually taking a look at it. So, But it's not going to, it's, it's yeah. not going to be, at this particular point in time, it's not going to be an everyday thing. I'm not going to be holding a quantum computer in my mobile phone potentially ever, unless something happens in material science. Uh, I, I completely disagree. There's a yeah. lot going on in material science. You will be, we're going to be having this conversation in 2030 and you're like, well, that was faster than I thought. <laughs> Actually, you'll probably be retired. But I'll, hey. I'll, I plan to be retired by then. Thank right. you very much. But coming back, like <laughs> back to that's how I see it, right? I don't see, right. I think innovation is a word that should be reserved for genuine moments. And, and we could argue you know, over the grey of, of what is an innovation. But I think mostly what IT has failed to do is evolve its organisation structure. Yes, we need architecture. They need, to, But I see architecture as much as a review process. To me, the primary role <laughs> of an architectural team is to work to set a strategy and then to review the strategy's implementation, right? And also, probably most importantly, to be smart buyers of technology. I would agree with that mostly. Uh, and you, you said my favorite word, which is strategy, because now I get to go on my soapbox and rant about what most companies consider strategy isn't. Um, and I will leave your quote to you because it's a good one. But the example that I keep going back to is somebody says, you know, either our strategy is Microsoft or, which is absolutely false, that's a vendor, that's not a strategy, or our strategy is Palo Alto. Uh, or somebody says something like, our strategy is digital transformation through empowering the customer and enabling agile responsiveness. Yeah. No, guys, that's a collection of buzzwords, that's not a strategy. <laughs> In, in my view, a technology strategy is very specific. You take your corporate strategy, which might be something, you know, corporate strategies are not very complicated. It's new dollars, saved dollars, different dollars, forced dollars. That's it. You know, new dollars is we're going to keep doing what we're doing, but we're going to make more money. Uh, saved dollars is we're going to make more money because we reduce costs. Different dollars is we're going to go after a different market or different customers. And forced dollars is, oops, regulation and compliance we have to meet. That's it. Now there's a second double click down, which says we're going to get new dollars by buying companies or something like that. That's a corporate strategy. The technology strategy should take those business ideas and say, 
okay, in order to enable new dollars by buying companies, we need an approach that is modular. Uh, so a technology component is, okay, we need to be modular because we need to be able to integrate all these new companies easily as opposed to having a very monolithic structure that's hard to unroll and, and encompass new, uh, new, new components to. Uh, and then the output of those technology principles is to develop that architecture and then figure out what you're not doing today that you should have been doing and move into the roadmap for doing things differently. And ultimately you arrive at the strategic outputs, which are which products to buy, how you should be organized, what your process should look like, and what, what benefits are gonna result from all of these things. Hmm. Very few companies ever go through that process. And in generally they wanna start at the far end or either far end, either yeah. it's a bunch of meaningless buzzwords on the corporate side or it's, well, our strategy is Microsoft. <laughs> I think a lot of people default down because what they do, yeah. and arguably, I think one of the mistakes that most architecture teams focus on is they focus on the strategy, but fail to recognize that the strategy is actually about buying smart, yeah. buying buying the right products at the right price. And you know to be part of the purchasing process, in fact, because the purchasing department doesn't know what it's buying and to some extent must rely on a smart you know, somebody who is an expert in the field to advise the company on what to buy. And too many architecture teams go, no, 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 I just design. And the CEO's, right. the CEO's got no idea what a technology looks like if it came up and bit him on the ass singing doodle doodle Yankee sort of thing, you know, like, and the CIO nine times out of 10 is an accounting expert, knows how to run Oracle or a database. But again, infrastructure purchases or anything outside of a particular area of expertise, no. And that's why you tend to have these like infrastructure managers as well, You're like especially in bigger companies, which can afford to have them. You have an infrastructure leader and then you have a, a CIO whose main job is to suck up to the CEO and try and get on the board sort of thing. I think the challenge here is getting, and I think the flip side here too, is that what we've seen, uh, the move away from design to operations has seen. So we've talked, seen a lot of DevOps and DevSecOps and NetSecOps and that whole ops thing and a lot of automation and that comes back to this you know we talked before about how accounting systems automated accounting well that would be called accounting ops if we had yeah, a thought right. of it you know 30 years ago that's what it would have been called or sales ops if you're buying salesforce in the cloud not you know cloud strategy that's sales right. ops yeah. yeah and and i think the challenge here is to understand that once upon a time operations was seen as a necessary evil so it's a bit like a factory again come back to the factory metaphor i've designed the factory i've deployed the factory that's it now we're done we just got to operate it until it's finished right and we do the minimum to ma uh, maximize the value the return on that investment and what we've realized is, is that the fungibility of IT and the variability of IT and the rate of change that we now face in the 2020s and, and the late 2010s means that operations is as important as architecture. And that is a part of the transformation that hasn't flowed through, I think, to most enterprise IT teams. And I would, I would say to you, most organizations at our, like just in the whole, is that IT operations is not a man or a woman in an overall running around with a pocket full of spanners and dirty hands trying to keep the machines running and buying spare parts just to keep, you know, just to keep it going for another week and, you know, whatever. It's actually a much more critical role in terms of sustaining the, the IT. And I'm not sure that that 
change or that transition in importance has actually been well realized or even much spoken about. It's much more talked about as oh, observability. Well, observability is an operational thing. The only thing I disagree slightly with is when you say operations is as important as architecture. Uh, actually, architecture is considered insufficiently important in my view. So as important as architecture ought to be is probably the way I would put it. But I would mm. agree with the, the general premise that operations is absolutely key. The one spanner I'd throw into the works, so to speak, for yeah. operations is the idea that in the past there was a mindset that somebody, usually engineering, will develop the process and somebody else, operations, will go follow the process. And what is largely missing in most organizations is that the operations teams need to be in a position of constant improvement. So they can't just follow the process by rote. They have to be looking at it and saying, hey, how can this be improved? What changes need to be made? And actively participating in the creation of the processes, which I've, I've seen myself in organizations, too few ops teams feel either empowered or you know, even the desire to. They want to just well, that's be because, able to tick off their boxes and go And that comes back to home. this operations has been, you know, yeah. you talk to architecture, which is the horse's head, and then down at the horse's ass is the operations yeah. team. And it's valued and we know And we know what comes out of the horse's ass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, you know, that as a metaphor, that's kind of how that works. And I think my point has been is the over-rotation around architecture has led to the sort of these acquisition of what I call Formula One cars, Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, look at this. We bought a Formula One car. And then they put it in the garage and then the operations team goes, that's great. It's fantastic. It looks beautiful. But we can't keep it running. We can't keep it running. We can't even drive it. It's too yeah. fast. It's, you know, it's got features we don't, you know, what are we doing? We're actually stuck in traffic in a Formula One car, you know, VMware vCloud, all this amazing infrastructure that people threw down onto their things and, you know, servers in chassis that... They were never able to exploit and get value from because of the over-rotation on strategy and not enough focus on operations. I also agree that it's funny. When I've worked with DevOps teams, the developers are kind of like, eh, I'm not crazy about this because you're asking me to do a half-assed job. You know, that 80% of, of features, minimum viable product, they're a little bit eh. But the operations team is like, wow, this is great. You're inviting me into the conversation so I can advise you what isn't going to work before mm. you actually go build it. Operations loves DevOps. Dev is a little uh, not as happy. But that said, I think anyone who is um, passionate about operations needs to recognize that there's kind of a skills refresh and character and temperament update that's required. You can't be successful at operations if you just want to follow the checklist anymore. Mm. And I know too many people that personally, that's what they want to do. They want to have somebody else worry about the checklist being right, think, and they just want to come in and check off the boxes. And the other thing I'm concerned about is the gap between architecture and operations is engineering, which right. is the deployment effectively. Which is the meat in the sandwich that we haven't talked about. We're talking to, about the bread at both sides. And now yeah. the most common way that people actually do the engineering is to outsource it. So they get a reseller to do it or they arrange with a vendor to do it. And in some cases, they even outsource it completely, or as I call it, outhousing. And the toilet metaphor is entirely entirely intentional. Um, you know, you know, say, well, okay, we don't want to operate this because it's not our core competency. Comedy gold, right? Because digital transformation is, IT is your core competency. It's one of your core competencies. You can't, can't recognize, can't not do that anymore. 
And so the gap has always been is you might have an architecture team who does smart strategy and does the appropriate due diligence, does work hard to negotiate with vendors and make a smart buying decisions. And then suddenly give it a, give the whole middle step away to somebody else. And then there's no transition to operations. Operations is then stuck with the Formula One car, but no training in how to maintain it or how to change the wheels or how to drive it or whatever, right? The use of resellers by vendors is a really good way for them to avoid responsibility for anything. It's also a really good way for vendors to avoid paying a lot of money. Like resellers are cheap compared to vendor employees and vendors don't want to have a lot of headcount. But and and so do, neither do customers, and it's kind of dumb that they continue to outsource the deployment and lose the opportunity to develop skills, to develop muscle. It's like saying I'm going to become, you know, a fitness expert. I'm going to be as fit as as I can ever be, without going to the gym. That's really what it is. Exactly what we're what we're saying in sequence is architecture is important, operations is important, and by the way, so is engineering, and it's important enough that you want to do it in house versus outhouse. Um, but I do want to highlight something that you raised, because since you talked about CIOs being kind of accounting bean counter types, uh, one thing I really want people to, to stop and think about is why has in most companies the leader of digital transformation, which is really about applying technology to doing business better, not been the CIO? And to me, this is a screaming indictment of how IT has done its job for the past 25 years, because the person who ought to be in charge of digital transformation should be the CIO from the standpoint of, you know, it's a, the, the CIO's job is to apply technology to the company's business. But in reality, they've been doing exactly what you said, Greg. They've been sucking up to the boss, yeah. trying to reduce costs and, and taking a very limited perspective that means when technology became cool again, which was approximately three or four years ago, they brought in some big fancy mm. expert from outside the company to run digital transformation instead of having the CIO do it. And I've had this conversation with CIOs. It's like, guys, digital transformation is happening, guys and gals. Yeah. You should be the digital transformation person. And usually the response is, hey, oh, no, no, Jana, you don't know what you're talking about. Consultants yeah, should well. be advisors, not doers. Exactly. You know, it's the old joke He's about... On the consultant came in and you said uh, the consultant's job was to tell you the time and he took your watch and then told you the time and left. I resemble that remark, but yeah. um, actually I'm thinking about companies that brought in, you know, in a lot of cases, they brought in people full time who were running like dot com back in the day, dot com businesses out in Silicon Valley. And it's like, oh, so and so worked at, you know, name brand, name brand dot com digital business. And they, they, they will help that. us tran transform our business. What you find is this person doesn't know jack about technology and is the wrong person yes. to connect the dots. I think, but yeah, what you're alluding to there is it's just because you've worked at Facebook or Google or right. AWS doesn't right. make you an expert on enterprise IT. In fact, it makes you the worst person to put into enterprise IT because you have no concept of how enterprise IT technology works because there's sort of the divergence of those big platforms into a completely different sphere of technology. And often it's proprietary at every level. And they don't even use the same, I mean, they're moving further and further away from even using the same programming languages that we do. And you know, the whole make their own devices, use their own hardware, make their own NICs, servers. The software that runs on top is all, you know, it's just a different game completely. Um, I will, will point out, though, that SaaS, which is where you rent software as a service, is a form of outhousing that actually addresses many of the problems with outsourcing. 
So we did see for a long time there, there was a, a rash of companies saying, oh, we'll just you know get someone else to run our VMware infrastructure for us and then discover that that's like saying, I'm going to get other people to run our toilets for us. Right. As if it was the same thing. Well, you know, there's an angle there that says, yes, you could just outsource it like toilet cleaning, except toilet cleaning doesn't have the same impact on your business as people mostly found out. I think what, first of all, I agree with you wholeheartedly that SaaS is a good way to outsource for a lot of, in a lot of cases. I think that that brings up two more points. Um, one is what we're really saying is technology matters, not, you know, architecture, engineering, and operations of technology all matter to enterprises and will continue to. Um, and that the CIO, if you put all these pieces together, the CIOs generally have done a pretty poor job of taking this mattering and positioning it accurately inside the, you know, the business transformation. Hmm. Um, you know, so I think those those things are all kind of clear. I, I think the other thing that leaps to mind, and this is something that, you know, it has to do with organizational structure. You talk about infrastructure versus applications. And one of the things that you raised is the idea that the CIO usually comes from an applications background and that is bad for a whole bunch of reasons because essentially people who come from applications backgrounds think in terms of projects what they do especially yeah. you know think about a cio who's in their 50s or 60s there they came up in the era of waterfall so they go out and their their ideas i go talk to analysis. the business yeah. i figure out what the requirements are i just decide what I need from infrastructure and then I roll out the project and it's done. And I have clients whose CIOs think in terms of projects. So our poor infrastructure people are told, you need a portfolio of projects. And infrastructure doesn't work that way. No, infrastructure too. needs to get up and running and then, as you said, evolutionarily improve because you can't suddenly take the network down and leave it down for a couple of weeks and then remember, put in the new network. <laughs> I remember sitting in front of a CFO and the CIO and the CEO, actually, in front of yeah. what was fundamentally a, almost like an executive council and saying, I need a budget and I need to be able to spend it incrementally ahead of requirements. So I need to be able to have 200 servers and then I need 210 servers because in the next whatever, right? But to do that, I need to have a budget allocated that I can spend just at discretion, speculatively in advance. And the CFO just about blew a foofy valve he said, you can't spend money without having a purpose for it. I said, no, I'm not. I'm, sp I'm spending money on based on predicted demand. But to do that, you know, and he's going like, well, well, how am I going to charge him back? And I'm going like, well, that's what we're here to talk about. And he's going like, no, I can't do that. We have to have, you know, just the level of, you know, and of course, a lot of these people came from consulting jobs. When you deal with people at very large companies and at board level, a lot of them have worked with McKinsey or, you know, one of the big Anderson consulting firms or they've rubbed up against these people and been told how awesome they are or their board is all that sort of stuff. And they just have this legacy consulting. Now, if you are going to do a review of your accounting system or a review of your executives or a review of your business process, then a gap analysis and then a project to address the gap, it's absolutely relevant and the right way forward. But I'm What's become clear is that if you take that sort of thinking and then attempt to apply it to an evolutionary part of the business, something that evolves every day, like sales, you know, or customer support, you can't come into customer support and say, well, where's the gap between this and that, right? It's just this incremental role of change. And I think um, that we're really getting to the point where we have to say, get away from the ITIL-based way of thinking, right? Um, and ITIL is the perfect representation of this factory production line. You do it. 
you use it and at the end of it the project there's a gap you do you refresh the infrastructure do you overhaul the all this legacy i don't think the organization structure changes so architecture engineering operations in my view architecture needs to take responsibility for buying which doesn't happen today they're often not i was going to raise that yeah. because typically architecture says oh my hands are you know i've just yeah. said we're going to cloud we're done you can decide whether it's aws and or i think there's too much Azure. of that because the cfo says well i'm responsible for spending the money but the cfo right. has to lean into somebody who's going to do smart purchasing because his purchasing yeah. clerks aren't right and so there's a gap there i think engineering needs to be in-house as much as possible now that doesn't mean not going to the cloud or not going to off-prem cloud or on-prem cloud or whatever it is. I think you need to have the skills in-house to do the deployment because if you don't, you can't operate it effectively, right? That doesn't mean your deployment team needs to be your operational team, although maybe it does in some organizations. You know, once you've bought the Formula One car, you need a driver, you need a team of mechanics who can change the tires and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And you don't get that by outsourcing your engineering. And I will finish the thought for you because you're going exactly where I would have gone. So architecture needs to think in terms of communicating with procurement. Uh, engineering needs to be brought in-house. Mm. Operations need to be, needs to be treated with respect. And my key point needs to internalize the fact that they're responsible for creating, co-creating the processes, not just following a bunch of checkboxes. And last but not least, the CIO needs to stop thinking in terms of projects and start thinking in terms of portfolios yes. and really start stepping up and owning digital transformation instead of outsourcing that to the, you know, the latest shiny budgeting because yeah. budgeting's a punctuated and evolution does not come here's a million dollars you've got to spend it by the end of the week uh i it, needed it three weeks ago or i needed, I needed it, it three, three weeks months. ago in and i need it in tranches and i need you guys to figure out the accounting exactly. for it. yeah i, I would I think, absolutely agree and ultimately the success of off-premise cloud is that ability to take yep. a budget and just that's it right that right that, but uh, then you're outsourcing your evolution if you don't want to call it innovation. Yeah. You're outsourcing your evolution. Now you're dependent your on someone else's infrastructure. You're dependent and on... And we and, all know what's going to happen here. The cloud providers, as soon as they've got everybody, they're going to immediately slow down their pace of innovation. They already have. Or, well, and, and they're already... The prices are yep. already... You know, they're exactly. not uh, are starting to rise. I mean, at the end of the day, we talked about this in a previous show, you know, AWS still spending 40 to $60 billion a year on infrastructure build out it's only making like total profits is like 12 to 14 billion a year who's when at what point does aws pay back the capital spending right today it's it's building it's paying back its shareholders in terms of building capital value building shareholder value by inflating the share price but at some point that tops off and that's when the the key situation will come well yeah Jonah, i think we're running out of time for today's show i think we've done this to death uh, short uh, I don't. Short. I I think we could keep doing this endlessly, but I agree with you that we're running out of time. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's show and you've got some follow-up or some feedback that you want to give us, head on over to packetpushers slash FU to send us your follow-up. Tell us what you think. We're also looking for topic ideas uh, as we approach the end of the first year of our first season of heavy strategy and uh, we're looking to get into next year with a whole bunch of new topics so if you've got some ideas packetpushers.net slash fu thanks jonah for joining me today thank you greg and this was fun uh, don't forget if you want to see more like this head on over to packetpushers.net which is part of a podcast network we've got lots of other technology podcasts there maybe you'd like to listen to one of those thanks